All right, Evan. People said they liked your intro last week, so I think we're going to have to see if you got it in the tank still. Yep, do stretch. All right, my fellow gemstones. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Evan Roosh. Joined with me always is the illustrious, the brilliant, the charming Jacob Shop. I'm blushing. I also thought you were going to forget the name of the podcast for a second. <laughs> Honestly, that'd be the most me thing to do, if we're being quite honest. Introduce the show we've been doing for a year. I mean, I still have to look up our social medias whenever I read them, because I can't get them. Like, hey. I don't know what they are yet. We've That's been doing right. this for over a year. But yeah, I, This is a year, I think. This will be like, well, this episode will be pretty oh, much a year. Yeah. I think it'll be like a day before it'll be the year mark, but right happy that. one year. Oh my gosh. Look, Look at, at us. That. Look at us. Who'd have thunk? Not me. Not me. <laughs> I'll never forget like waking up to that text. Yeah, get you a friend that says you sends you morning texts about starting history podcasts. Yeah. Just getting that, I'm like, that sounds pretty dope. Yeah, I think I text just literally out of the blue, texted you and Mark. You guys want to start a history podcast? Man. Yeah. Microsoft was starting a garage. We started in a basement. We'll see which one makes Actually, the more we, money. Technically, we started in a uh, dining room and then moved to a basement. So that is true. We've already had two studios. Look at us go. Wow. wonder where the third one's going to be. Just McDonald's play place. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a ball pit. In the ball pit. <laughs> All, like one of those... <laughs> All we hear in the background is like, Devin, get the fuck out of the ball pit. Like Everyone mom. out. Someone peed in the slide. <laughs> Some disgruntled McDonald's workers, like they're here again. Right. It's like we can't keep you can't keep bringing recording equipment around children. <laughs> hey, it would get us more listeners though, because then people would see us in action. They'd also see us on a police report, but <laughs> that's <laughs> probably true. That, that as well. Oh yes, welcome back, everybody. I hope you guys are excited because to celebrate our one year, we're doing. We're going to start our most in-depth series, I think, so mm -hmm. far. So it's going to be three parts. I know we've done some two-parters, but it's going to be a three-parter. Yeah, never had the illustrious uh, three-peat, I guess, of a topic. Not yet. Until today, we begin. And then the next week. And, and then, then the next, next week. week. And I mean, I've done the notes for both of the first two parts, at least my notes for it. And it's 14 pages just for the first two parts, so... We got a lot of stuff to uh, to throw at you guys, and I'm pretty excited about it because it was a topic, this is a topic that we're going to be talking about Ruby Ridge, and it's a topic I knew a little about. Like, I knew the overview of what it was, but I had no idea of, like, specifics with it, and man, is it a wild story. Right. Well, first off, that's, a I think, a new record for us. We actually were at two minutes and 58 seconds until we mentioned what we're talking about for the rest of the episode. Yeah. So, pat on the back for us. Look at us go. Yeah. We're getting the hang of it. <laughs> but no, this is another one where I really had no idea of like that this event occurred and super excited to really talk about it uh, with you and just inform the listeners on what happened because a lot of the sources, of course, we'll talk about them later. The lasting impact that this event had can still be seen even though it's not a much talked oh, about topic if that makes sense very much and this i the main reason i knew about this topic is because it coincided with waco which mm -hmm. everyone knows kind of the wit story of waco with the branch davidians and how the atf and the fbi kind of bungled that case and 
Man, bungled is like the key word for this entire story. Right. Like on both sides, not just on the law enforcement side, but on the side of the family who is the main source of the problem, which is the Weavers. But I mean, there's blame to be put on both sides and the amount of missteps is just ridiculous. Oh yeah, on both sides, tons of missteps and just complete lack of communication. Yep. Uh from both sides, which I mean weavers didn't have any running electricity or water we'll talk about more or talk more about that but it definitely didn't have to lead to you know deaths yeah it could have been pretty easily avoidable but it's definitely one of those things that i don't know just excited to talk about and another topic that i had no idea about until of course jacob brings it up (laughs) yeah and the like like i said this coincides with waco and those both of these events waco and ruby ridge are the main cruxes for the eventual bombing of the the Mura Federal Building in Oklahoma City. And that's kind of why I wanted to do this topic is because this is the first step in that process. So after this, I would like to cover Waco whenever I can finish the book that I have on that. And then we can do Oklahoma City at the end. So I kind of want to keep this as like a running Mm storyline. And then eventually we can get through all of it. But we'll see what happens. We're just going through America's greatest hits. Just <laughs> yeah, literally. This, then Waco, then, yeah, the event that happened in, in Oklahoma. But well, well, because for you and me, this all happened before we were born. So, I mean, right? this never was a frontline news story for us. Mm-hmm. So, I think a lot of people our age, which I know listen to this, don't probably don't even know about this story or even have heard of it. And I even have a coworker who's like five years older than I am. And I told him we were doing this. He's like, I don't even know what that is. So I was like, you know, I think it's good to cover this because it gets it more into the public view. But it mm-hmm. also shows like culture hasn't really changed that much in America oh, no. since this happened. Because this is very much an American story. It's It's very rooted in, well, guns, conspiracy, religion. Like it's got... White people acting a fool. <laughs> it's It's got all, as Evan said, the greatest hits. So. Yeah, we're just playing the hits. Yeah, so, well, without further ado, should we get into the story of Ruby Ridge? Let's dive on in. So, our main source for this series is a book by a man named Jess Walter called Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family. And it's a very well-researched book. Jess Walters was one of the reporters on the front lines while this story was happening. So he has a lot of firsthand experience with the actual event. And he's released this new version, which it used to be called Every Knee Shall Bow. Now he revised it and edited it and added new details and stuff. So it's very thoroughly researched, does a really good job keeping a storyline and keeping it entertaining. So Yeah, and my sources were pbs.org and history.com yeah pbs did a really good uh american experience documentary on youtube they have mm-hmm. the full thing on there so if you want to know more you can also watch that if you're more of a visual instead of a, a book person but or a audio listener <laughs> yeah or you could just listen to us yeah. your friendly neighborhood podcast <laughs> If any adult in the compound is observed with weapons after the surrender announcement is made, deadly force can and should be used to neutralize this individual. This was a part of the rules of engagement given to the FBI's special hostage rescue team in their briefing on how to approach the standoff taking place at Ruby Ridge, a remote wilderness in Idaho 50 miles south of the Canadian border. 
Aside from various wildlife, this ridge was also home to the Weaver family, a tight-knit family consisting of Randall and Vicky and their four children, Sarah, Samuel, Rachel, and newborn Elisheba. The family built their own cabin, grew food in a garden, and fished in the creek. The Weavers even made some new friends, some good, some bad. They had lived in this isolation for years, rugged and peaceful, before their lives would be changed in an instant on a late summer day in 1992. On that day, the Weaver family would be broken permanently and profoundly when a gunfight would break out near their home, ultimately leading to the deaths of a law enforcement agent and two of the Weaver family. The case would go on to show flaws in, uh, in radical ideology, as well as the dangers of misinformation and government powers going unchecked. But how did a family seeking asylum in the woods of northern Idaho lead to a deadly standoff? And who is to blame for what happened? Well, in this case, both sides are in the wrong, and we're going to try and sift through the case, which is both immensely complicated, but at the same time, shockingly simple, and try and explain it to you guys the best we can. Very curious to see in the post-editing what kind of background music you do for that. <laughs> like you did the amazing Italian Just put the music. Italian behind that, too. <laughs> That would be new listeners be like so confused. <laughs> what is happening? Right. <laughs> but yeah, I was kind of amazed by how you could sum this up very simply as a storyline. Mm-hmm. But there's so many complex things that go on in the background that could easily be overlooked or could be taken out of context to vilify one side over the other. So that's why I kind of found this case to be so fascinating. It's just because you can look at it from either way. Like you can Mm -hmm. look at it as the weavers were completely in the wrong and the law enforcement agencies were doing what they could, or you could look at it from the other side and say the law enforcement agencies were completely in the wrong and the weavers did nothing wrong. So. Yeah, it's definitely not one of those things that's just so clear cut black and white, I guess I would say. Um, Kind of just goes back against that lack of communication between the two sides, but. I don't know. It's just a very interesting case and the impacts that it had on, like we'll be talking about militias later, uh, how a lot of uh, American quote-unquote militias, uh, those militia groups, use this case as an example for why they have just an outrageous amount of guns. You know, it's like I always joke, like, don't trust your government kids, but like people actually use this case and this event to basically say, no, like, really don't trust yeah. your government kids. So let's, let's get to meet who the Weaver family is. And to start, we're going to go... <laughs> You're th- starting five <laughs> <laughs> for the Weavers. So we're going to start off with Vicky. And she was born on June 20th, 1949 to Jean... I don't know if it's Jean or Jeannie Jordison and her husband David. And they welcomed Vicky into the world. So she was born in their white two-story farmhouse set between the towns of Colville and Fort Dodge in central Iowa. So David was the third generation of his family to live on this farm, and despite being 1949, the house had just gotten electricity for the first time. His grandfather had built the home after retiring from the coal mines and bought a 160-acre plot of land, which to me is just like, what... (laughs) That is nuts. Like, how much was land back then? Like, land prices? Not well. I mean, later on, when they buy their house, I think they paid like fifteen grand for like twenty acres in the mountains, which is just like it wasn't good land. Granted, like it was mountain land, but 
it's just like I can't imagine that as a person who just spent yeah, a lot we, of money to buy a house. Right, like we both with like, a quarter acre. Yeah, right. <laughs> and like I look at I come over to your place and I'm like, this is a great yard. Like why aren't we outside all the time? Right. Like why aren't we just playing outside? 160 acres. Wow. So David bought it from an uncle toward the end of World War II. And he was described as a hardworking and responsible man who preached the scripture of the Latter-day Saints. So Vicky, growing up, was described as farm pretty with long black hair and dark eyes. And she began speaking relatively early with a strong Midwestern slur, which I don't know what that means. We never have accents, so. Oh, let me just squeeze past <laughs> you. Gotta grab my mic. So her sister, Julie, was born four years after her, after... Julie was born a year and a half later. They welcomed their brother, Lanny, into the world. Or Lanny. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's L-A-N-N-Y. I think it's Lanny. Or Lani. I think this is my one influence on you, Jacob. Just the mispronunciation yeah. that was just coming to you. Lonnie, Lanny, Lanny. I don't know. We're going to say Lonnie. Lonnie. L-Dog. He doesn't come into the story except for like one other time. So... <laughs> So they, the Jordison family was big, and they had plenty of talented and good-looking cousins, but Vicky was said to have stood out amongst all of them. And she was said to be feminine, almost described as domesticated. She was very good at sewing and knitting, cooking and cleaning. Even though she rarely had to practice these things, she just kind of picked it up very easily. She was a quick study. And along with picking up things naturally, she read all the time which made her a very intelligent child. And her parents said that having conversations with young Vicky was like having conversations with the little adult. Hmm. So she was very well-read at a young age. But despite her feminine and intelligent personality, she would also join her father doing things like reshingling the house's roof. So she wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty, which I guess living on a farm in the 50s kind of had to. Mm-hmm. That was very much still the time when you had children to work right just so, to have a mini work yeah around, exactly running around like bopping their heads on things exactly so vicky was said to be the mature and respectful daughter never really speaking out of turn and stayed out of trouble where her sister julie kind of took on the role of being the wild child but the two of them got along well and had a very close relationship they they shared all of their feelings with each other, like the one time when there was a large oak tree that the family loved that was getting cut down to make way for new power lines. And as a kid, you can all relate to some weird landmark that you just kind of identify with, and it becomes like your play area. It's probably so, just a great climbing tree as well. Honestly, yeah. Just as kids, you always want to climb things, so. Yeah. My parents have a huge tree in their backyard, and if I could have climbed it when I was little, I would have, but they yep. cut all the lower branches off, so oh. <laughs> I couldn't do that, unless I was like a monkey boy. <laughs> Maybe this is where she found, like, this is, like, what instilled her hatred of electricity. I mean... The psychological terror of that tree coming down. It really is, like, this is the first idea that Vicky got into her mind, that the government could just kind of come through and steamroll whatever they wanted to and take things from people. Mm. So whether the family wanted it or not, it was going to happen because the government was putting in things. So this it started kind of early with Vicky where she saw that maybe the powers that be aren't always in the people's best interest. So Julie and Lonnie would do outdoor chores around the farm while Vicky would help cook and sew. And by watching her father, who lived through the Great Depression, Vicky learned about stockpiling food, which would come in handy later when she eventually moved out to the mountains with their new family. 
but she also learned many of her religious beliefs from her father as well. So David was Reformed Mormon, as I mentioned earlier, and his wife Jeannie was Congregationalist, and the kids would go to church with their father while uh, Jeannie would stay at home because she wouldn't want to go to a Mormon church because she was not Mormon. So she just decided to stay home. And Julie was said to not really enjoy church much, but Vicky bought into her father's teachings at church and after church because he would come home and Sundays were said to have been the days where they would come home, the father would speak on the lessons at church and take on a very apocalyptic tone with a lot of what he would say, focusing on revelations and also his belief of a universe inside the earth. So he was a, he was a hollow earth guy. <laughs> That's probably the most unique, like, hollow earth theory that we've gotten, like, an entire universe yeah. inside the earth. So, if you want to learn more about the hollow earth, you can go listen to our episode that we did, like, a month and a half ago or whatever that was. I truly forget about a lot of the episodes that we do. Yeah, it's, it was a fun one. So, what do you think, like, earthquakes would be? Like, the universe the universe is trying to get out type deal? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why are you asking me? But, yeah, he had some pretty out there beliefs. And some of these beliefs kind of set the groundwork for Vicky's beliefs that the white race shouldn't mix with any other races, stating, quote, You can't tell me Joseph Smith advocated race mixing. There were no black RLDS elders until our generation, end quote. Oof. Yeah, like the first three paragraphs or just first three like kind of main points of like her upbringing. It's like, oh, so she's kind of like a country girl like christian or excuse me reform mormon like nothing too red flagish, and then she drops one of those lines yeah and that's the a big sticking point with this whole story is because inherently these people aren't bad people they just had some really bad beliefs so it i guess it it skates that line on like are you a bad person inherently because you got taught something like this and it got stuck in your brain, which I guess you could argue is yes. It's like you should know that this is wrong. Right. It's kind of that nature versus nurture a little bit. Yeah. You know, like, are you just going to latch on to everything your parents taught you or are you going to kind of think for yourself type deal? Yeah. Which I guess was probably tough for her upbringing. Granted, she was from a very small town and I, I, I'm guessing that like her community, her support system outside of her family was like the church that she went to. Yeah. You know, so she's constantly getting those messages and they were not great. No, I mean, should not say that. (laughs) I mean, Colville had 250 people at this time. So talk about a small community. Right. Holy cow. When Vicky and her sister were teenagers, the Department of Transportation came and told the family that a new interstate highway was going to be put in that area where the Jordison farm was, and the family would be displaced. So the DOT pretty much said, we'll pay you well for your land, you'll be able to move and buy a new house, but the girls were not very happy about it. And they pretty much said, how could the government come take their family home that they had lived in for three generations now? It just didn't really make sense that they could just come and do that. But luckily for the family, they had a neighbor who hired an attorney, and the family was able to keep the land. But it was just kind of another instance of the government coming to take their what they owned. Mm-hmm. So after that, 
they still stayed on the farm, and Vicky went to school in Colville until she went off to go to Fort Dodge, which was a bigger town of 25,000 compared to Colville's 250. So she went there in ninth grade and started uh, high school there. So it took her a little while to adjust to this bigger school because Colville didn't really set her up to be the most popular girl. But she did do well in school, got A's in her classes, joined a few clubs. But the one issue she could never really grasp was dating or boys. And ever since she was younger, the boys kind of paid more attention to Julie than they did to Vicky. And Julie was like, well, I don't understand because Vicky's my idol. Why are mm-hmm. boys not flocking to her? But Vicky graduated from Fort Dodge High in 1967 and decided to go to the small Iowa Central Community College, which was a school of, at the time, 1,181 farm kids, where boys outnumbered girls five to one. Oof. (laughs) So (laughs) there's lots of boys to choose from, but Vicky still really didn't have any luck, at least not in any real sense. Any boys she did really spend time with, they were kind of put off by her motherly attitude. She was very doting and at the same time very independent. So she would be very motherly to them, but then also do her own thing, which kind of set all these boys off. They were like, Mm -hmm. I don't really want to date a person who's just trying to mother me the whole time, which is understandable. (laughs) And or just leave me. (laughs) Yeah, it's like I I want someone who can also rely on me because this is still the 60s where it's a very patriarchal system where the guys are kind of expected to provide while the the women are supposed to just kind of be the motherly character, which... I guess. Right, like it was a five-to-one ratio at her college, boys to girls, so it's definitely still very apparent in this time period. Yeah. That was just the mindset of, or just like the general thing that's what you did was just marry someone, guy goes to work, mother stays home. And especially coming from a farm life. I hope no one one isolates that. (laughs) That would would be tough. I could. I was, yeah, I was about to say, I'm just describing what was like in the 60s. Yeah, and coming from the farm life like she did, she like learned how to do everything herself. Mm-hmm. And since she was the oldest in the family, she learned from an early age to be the one to do everything, pretty much. So It's like her sink is broken, and some guy's walking in like, oh, I can fix that up for you. And she's like, I got this, dude. Don't like, worry about it. <laughs> you can, why is your shirt off? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. So she dated a man named Dave, but... She kind of fell very hard for him when he did not fall as hard for her. And when he broke up with her, it hit her pretty hard. So she was normally very strong and confident. But Julie kind of realized after this that Vicky really just wanted someone to devote herself to. And after graduating from community college, Vicky dated a mechanic named Bob. But that didn't work out as well. And then she had a short-lived relationship with another man that dwindled when he was accused by the sheriff of raping his sister-in-law. So that's like the only line in the book that he gives on that relationship. It's just like, yeah, this guy came in and got arrested because the sheriff thought that he... Of all the things yeah. to cut from the book. <laughs> yeah, like, you can't just throw that dicey sentence yeah. in there and then just drop it. It's like, man, no one will ever... No one will notice this. Yeah. It doesn't even give the guy's name either. It just says that. Yeah. But... The man who Vicky would eventually spend her life with was about to step into the picture, and that is where we get Randall, otherwise known as Pete Weaver, which I don't know where the nickname Pete comes from off of Randall, but... Makes no sense. Literally no (laughs) sense. (laughs) 
So Randall or again Pete. Yeah. Weaver. We're uh, just gonna call him Randall or Randy most of the time because <laughs> I just don't know where Pete comes from. So again, makes no sense. Maybe that was the middle name, but he was known to some of his high school friends as Pete and was born to Clarence and Wilma. <laughs> We, Those are best names for like a Midwestern Iowa family. Oh, Clarence and Wilma. Like yeah. That's just like perfect. It's like you see them at the diner every Sunday. They're always there for Sunday brunch for sure. And also like a Wednesday Bible study. Yep. A cup of coffee and a smoke. Like, Oh, there's such a good chili special at that diner. <laughs> and you know, like the waitress has been working there for 20 years. She's just rip starts on her smoke break. Oh, yeah. I love this little life that we're building. For, 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 <laughs> we're for more them. focused on his parents than on him right. so far. We but. could probably build an entire backstory around this waitress in the diner. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was born on January 3rd, 1948. Clarence had waited through the births of three daughters before finally getting the son that he wanted. Both of Randy's parents were fervent Christians, bouncing from one denomination to the next until they found something that fit their rigid beliefs. That is something that's very interesting. Like, you would think that with, well, later, like how, let's say, I guess, stubborn and strict Pete was in his beliefs that he came from a family that bounced around from denomination to denomination. Right. Like, with our experience growing up in private, christian schools it's usually like no you stick to the one denomination all yeah. the other ones are wrong right so that's a very interesting thing to to read yeah and i think that really helps to shape him eventually later on because he very much follows vicky's lead on everything mm-hmm. and eventually it be- instead of being randy and vicky it becomes vicky and randy because she's very much the head of the relationship mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing like it's they very much worked well with each other but it was a lot of Randy saying something about their beliefs and then giving like the side eye to Vicky to make sure that it was the right thing to say. She <laughs> he just looks back and she's just like has a spoon or something <laughs> in her hand, like no nah, no, nah, wasn't quite right. But Randy was a self self proclaimed small kid who hated bullies, but was also known as wiry and strong from his work on the farm. He once made his father proud by standing up for himself when a farmer tried paying him less than the bigger kids. At their first home in the small town of Grant, Iowa, Randy played Little League baseball and hung out with the other farm boys. So he definitely seems to like have a you know, small town boy upbringing. Yeah, and in the book, he, uh, Jess said like all of the people that knew them growing up said that they were the all-American couple. Like this small town... Mm-hmm. A midwestern couple who just like worked from on the farms went to all the football games on friday nights like it was very much just like the all-american ideal story literally sounds like ronald reagan's wet dream of a family <laughs> <laughs> literally <laughs> but uh yeah it it said their first home was in grant iowa but it, everything i found online for where he was born said he was born in villisca iowa which i've actually been to because there's like Another story we should definitely cover sometime where there's a family that was mysteriously murdered and no one knows who did it to this day, but now the house is super haunted. And when I was in my phase of doing paranormal investigations, we stayed overnight there and it was actually a lot of fun, but nothing happened. So cannot confirm nor deny if it's haunted. (laughs) 
the fact that you just dropped like in my paranormal hunting phase that was, or paranormal that, yeah, investigation that, phase. That was very much a me story. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's gonna, just gonna be so many people. Like you're gonna need to expand on that one day. Maybe if we do a live show, we'll do, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do a Q and A session or something. Right. Um, at the age of eleven. Randy accepted Jesus as his savior in front of the church and once again made his father proud. A few, a few years later, Clarence would move the family north to a town called Jefferson, Iowa, which was 50 miles from Fort Dodge. Here, Randy would be a popular guy in school and between church and Sunday school would work on cars and have a few beers with his friends. So now he's turning into nice. one of the members of Greece. <laughs> It's literally like the cliche like, 80s high school or yes so it's, it's just so funny how idyllic this whole story is mm-hmm. until it's not yeah until it goes it very much takes a hard right yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> uh one of his buddies is quoted saying it was like growing up on happy days it was friday night football get the crops out of the field and wait for the next parade so, I mean, you're, you can honestly picture what his childhood was. Yeah. After graduating from Jefferson High School in 1966, Randy decided to enroll at Iowa Central Community College and drove 50 miles to Fort Dodge every morning. Here, he was exposed to something new, the small black population that his hometown of Jefferson didn't have. But at this point, Randy got along with everyone, regardless of the color of their skin. He and his friends would go out cruising in Randy's Mustang and go to parties and dances. It's so funny that growing up, you can be in this situation where you're exposed to these different people and get along with everyone so well. Because as far as what the book said, it just seemed like he got along with everyone. Like he was mm-hmm. the fun guy, that like kind of charismatic. And then I don't know how you take that hard turn after you've already had that kind of experience with people and then just be like, nah, they're not good anymore. Right. I mean, you maybe credit a fair amount to Vicky, but at the same time, like having your whole moral compass kind of shift due to a girlfriend slash wife is right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's where it comes in. where it's just like Vicky was the head of the relationship. Right. And like I said, it's not a bad thing. It's just, I think, she kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to say, it, like emphasized her beliefs a lot more, and mm-hmm. her beliefs were in the grand picture fine, except for like these little glaring flaws, and those glaring flaws become very big flaws eventually. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, Randy started driving a school bus on a route right next to Fort Dodge. One of the students he drove, a junior at Fort Dodge High, named Denise. Caught his eye, and he asked her out. It's just the fucking weirdest thing oh. in the world. You just, like, Ooh. your bus Ooh. driver comes up to you. You're in high school. Your bus driver stops the bus. It's just like, you want to go out sometime? Hey, pretty, oh, my. <laughs> literally the weirdest thing in the world. I can't. I can't. I can't even imagine, like, that situation I mean, today. Gra- granted, he's, like, 19 at this point, maybe 20, but still. That's just weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> all I can pick, like, the only bus driver I can actually honestly picture is just Chris Farley and uh, Billy Madison. Like, that guy is asking out a 17 year old. 
Holy cow. Well, she said yes. and Which hung... is even weirder. Right, right. <laughs> uh, they hung out a few times, drove around his Mustang, and hung out with his college friends, drank. But she got uncomfortable, and he said that they should leave. Denise described him as quite the gentleman. She was short and pretty, with dark hair and eyes, similar to the girl he would date next. And the thing here is, like, it's, it is very weird to me that this happened, but Randy was, like, a very kind-hearted person, and he was also, like, a good-looking guy. So I can mm-hmm. understand why a teenage girl would be like, who is this older guy? He's paying attention to me. And... And he has a job. <laughs> He's driving a bus. <laughs> he protects lives on the daily. How dare you? Him and Vicky were both like very attractive people when they were growing up. So we're calling it what it is. Their pictures were. We won't give them the full baddies like uh, yeah. Mr. Uh, Mr. Gottlieb. Yeah, but... we can't give them like the baddie title just because they were like so farm focused. It's just like you can't really call them baddies if they grew right. up on a farm. I don't think. Right. They're not going to the clubs and throwing it around. Do we call them I don't even know. Yeah. Award-winning horses. Thoroughbreds. <laughs> Stallions. <laughs> Randy Weaver and Vicky Jordanson would go on a few dates, but wasn't anything serious at first. But despite this, their friends all said that they belonged together. They were the definition of an all-American couple. Two attractive, small-town kids from the Midwest. But Randy was too young to settle down, and he was ready to move on to a bigger calling. In 1968, Randy dropped out of Iowa Central and joined the Army. With Vietnam in full swing, Randy said that he wanted to do his part, and anyone who wasn't willing to serve was doing a disservice to their country. He started as a combat engineer along with airborne training, and eventually passed training for the Special Forces. He was a good soldier. Yeah, he eventually was a, or became a part of the Green Berets, which is, from all understanding, like, had quite the impact on Vietnam, especially. Yeah. With the different missions that they carried out. And that's one thing I wanted to go a little more into on research was the Green Berets just as a group, but I didn't really have time to do that. But, I mean, he, it was special forces. Like, he, mm-hmm. he worked his way through the army and did a very good job. He was very dedicated. And, I mean, you can tell because he was pretty much saying like anyone who's not willing to serve isn't doing their part so he was very much for the service like yep he signed up and wanted to do his part Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't even he wouldn't even see combat with with all of that experience (laughs) yeah he like he learned all the survival techniques how to make explosives how to prepare fortifications he eventually became a sergeant a sharpshooter with m16 and a 45 caliber handgun and like we mentioned, just all in all, a great soldier. But all he saw, Jacob mentioned, he never saw ca- never saw combat. But all he saw was a stream of body bags coming home from the war, and the public sentiment towards the conflict turning sour. He said the military and the public were trying to lose the war, and Randy became disillusioned. Dis- wow, disillusioned by the military, and came to the conclusion that the entirety of the government was corrupt in one way or another. And in 1970, he came, he came home on leave. Yeah, it, it was very much just like a, the worst of a good scenario for him because he was excited to serve and he was willing to go fight 
and just never got the chance to for whatever reason. I don't know why he never got sent up. Maybe it just was that they wanted him back here maybe to train because he was so adept at what he was doing. But it didn't really say why he never saw combat. But then seeing all of these people coming home in body bags and then while you're seeing your fellow soldiers coming home dead after fighting in this war and then seeing the people back home saying, like, we need to pull out of Vietnam. Right. For him, was just like, everyone's betraying the country. Mm-hmm. So it, this is a turning point, I feel like, for him, where he very much sees everything differently from his idyllic childhood now to this war-torn country turning against its roots in his eyes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, it's probably just a huge, you know, psychological impact on him as well. Yeah, because this is probably his first real occurrence of death of people of his own age, I would assume, and he's seeing those deaths come in of people that he may have even known. Yeah, exactly. And then also turning on the news and seeing you know protests like anti-war protests pretty much everywhere. Um, that probably had a huge effect on him. And uh, the the one story that they kind of singled out in the book was that he was part of a team that did, it was like a drug raid or something, uh, like on American soil. They did like a drug raid. I don't remember if it was on like an army compound or whatever, but it was pretty much just like a military police thing. And he found out that once they got the drugs from this drug sting, that the guys he was working with didn't return all the drugs and instead kept some of them. So that was part of the reason why he kind of was like, I'm done with this organization because they're doing things that are against code. Mm -hmm. And he very much saw that as like a betrayal of honor. So. Right. He probably viewed like the, just the organization of the military as probably that highest honor, like the highest honor you can do to serve your country. And when someone broke the code, or the rules of that organization definitely took it as a huge betrayal. Yeah. But while he was on leave, uh, he and Vicky went out almost every single night. He met her parents, and she made plans to go see him at the bait. Randy had come home to find a wife, and find one he did. He presented Vicky with a ring, and they were engaged, much to Julie's chagrin. Yeah, she was like, you barely know. Like, they were really only dating for like a year year and a half by the time that he proposed to her so she was like you don't even know this guy and she's like no no i dated him before he left for the army it's fine that is the most like a like military service thing of all time just yeah getting married right away that also dates them so much because that was very <laughs> much just like the sentiment back then was... oh 100 that was a sentiment even like through the 80s it's yeah like... No, you graduate, then you just get married to whoever you're dating yeah. at the time. But it was so funny because while Randy was home on leave, he went to go visit Denise, the girl that he met on his bus driving expeditions. <laughs> and Probably didn't ask if she graduated from school. <laughs> he was like talking to her and her friend in her driveway, and then Denise went back inside, and while she was inside, Randy told her friend, like, yeah, came home to try and find a wife. And Denise was like, oh, no. <laughs> but then he went and dated Vicky, so it was fine. But it was it was so funny. That man left it all on the table, yeah, I guess. He was just like, I'm out here looking. Yeah, he's like, I'm sick of dating. <laughs> <laughs> but Randy left the Army, and in November of 1971, the two were married in a Congregationalist church by two ministers, 
the pastor from Vicky's mother's church, and a minister from her father's RLDS church. The couple moved to Cedar Falls, where Randy used his military service to go to school at Northern Iowa University, while Vicky worked as a secretary, secretly hoping to just be a housewife and a mother. Randy aimed to become an FBI agent or secret service. Literally the most <laughs> ironic thing <laughs> in this is... entire story. <laughs> okay. The irony is just, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's literally like the most ass-backwards thing in the world once you f- get to the end of this story. like, But yeah, he very much had, he still had faith in the system after his military career and wanted to still serve in some capacity. So, I mean, he had plans. Those plans change very quickly. But right. <laughs> and it's funny why his plans change, too. It's because they get caught up in, like, an MLM, pretty much. Right. <laughs> so it's just, like, one misstep takes them down this whole path of just bad decisions. Just it's a slippery slope. So Randy and Vicky, they lived happily together while Julie began her... While Vicky's sister, Julie, began dating a man named Fred... So the young Weaver family would come back to visit the Jordisons for Thanksgiving, where they tried to pitch the rest of the Jordisons that they should consider selling Amway cleaning products. Oh my gosh, that's like today's um, essential oils. Yeah, just... it's like Mary Kay products. Like, did I ever tell you that? Like, what am I intern? This is sidetracking maybe too much, but I was actually like in like a pyramid scheme oh i was too for a little bit <laughs> oh yeah is that just like something we do as teenagers i guess it's just it's like either like sell knives to that like house painting bullshit <laughs> or what i did was just like sling pillows and costcos and sam's clubs yeah, i tried selling weight loss tea it's like <laughs> <laughs> it was a whole thing <laughs> right that's just like a rite of passage <laughs> yeah you kind of got to so they didn't get any of the family to sell it and eventually gave up and started taking work elsewhere so Randy dropped out of college and took a high-paying job with John Deere, and Vicky continued her secretary work. And shortly after, Vicky's sister Julie got engaged. However, her husband drowned while they were on a camping trip. <laughs> Not good. Julie, sweetie. No. I know. So, but it's, it was said that Vicky was pretty much the only one that was able to console her and calm her down. And the only reason I really mentioned that is just because I wanted to show how important that family bond was for mm-hmm. Vicky. And... It'll show later how much that rela- the relationship changes so mm. much by the time the story reaches its climax. Eventually, Julie met another man named Keith, and Keith was much different than her. He played in a rock band and was staunchly liberal compared to the rest of the family who was conservative. But they eventually got together when Julie and a friend saw his band, and he asked her out, and a year later they were married. So Vicky and Randy were kind of the ideal of the relationship to Julie and Keith and kind of tried to model their relationship after their brother and brother-in-law and sister. And it was kind of because Randy would always have like these fancy new cars and toys because he did have a really well-paying job and they just got a nice new house. But Randy and Vicky were very quickly found out to be obsessive with anything that they did. So at one point it was with that Amway. And then eventually, Randy got really into silver. And then eventually, it, it was doomsday prophecies. So it very much escalated. Honestly, this would probably be us if we didn't have the podcast. Honestly. <laughs> we would just get so into silver. Well, I mean, do, bros are into NFTs now. Yeah. Like, this is literally the same. It's modern day silver. Like, Again, like, 
history repeats itself. It just has different toys, different people, and different yeah. situations. Yeah. Now it's Joe Rogan, NFTs, <laughs> and I don't even know. And the metaverse blockchain. And Halo. <laughs> and hey. So in March of 1976, Randy and Vicky would eventually have their first daughter, who they named Sarah. So Vicky was really in love with babies and teaching people about how to raise them. But it was around the time that Sarah was born that Vicky found a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by a man named Hal Lindsey, which is a book that has a lot of cultural impact on a lot of different situations. Mm -hmm. And it's very much not in a good way. So the book laid out biblical texts in a way that connected to the current world they were living in. They compared the Soviet Union with the evil empire of Gog, and Armageddon would be caused by an Arab-Israeli war that ends in a nuclear holocaust between the U.S. and the Soviets. All right, chill. That's heading a little too close to home today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meanwhile, we are going to Ukraine. Right. So this was pretty much the first book that took those revelation prophecies and put them into context of modern day mm-hmm. and said, like, there are signs out there of this happening now, so you guys need to start preparing for the end of the world. And, of course, the Great Tribulation or Rapture was coming. So that's what the idea of the Rapture, for those that don't know, is when God's children would be snatched up to heaven and those who haven't been taken yet would be persecuted for their beliefs. And by 1978, the Weavers were talking about moving to a wooded mountaintop away from everyone else, where they would be out of reach of danger from the evil false government. And this was all a part of their supposed visions that they were having. So this is very much turning into a QAnon, <laughs> like an early precursor to a QAnon type thing. Right. You can see the red flags just popping yes. up just in this part one. <laughs> There's definitely echoes of this in modern day conspiracy groups. Mm-hmm. And I think there always kind of has been. But in April of 1978, the Weavers welcomed another child into the world, their first son, Samuel. So all of their children would be named after Bible figures so that they would learn to follow the Lord's teachings. And these beliefs were becoming more and more a central point of the family's personality. So whereas before they were just kind of the typical all-American family that everyone kind of got along with, now they are turning kind of into those religious nuts that I think everyone at one point or another has come in contact with who very much push the beliefs to the forefront of everything that they talk about Mm -hmm. and don't really associate anything with something not religious. And... These are the kind of people that were the forefront of the satanic panic craze where it's like rock and roll is bad and stuff like that. If you smoke weed, you're going directly to hell. Exactly. So they would stay indoors for long periods of time, reading the Bible, watching shows like The 700 Club or Jerry Falwell, only to come out and do all the chores like mow the lawn in a very fast succession. So like... The neighbors actually, for a period of time, were like, we don't know if they're still alive in there because they don't come outside. And then they would come out for like an hour and a half, quick do everything, and then go back inside. I mean, the false government. That's, come yeah, right. Better like the sun is also the false government. It's like the sun's rays will get I you. just can't imagine like a family that never comes outside, literally comes outside, just starts running while they mow the lawn and like throwing the garbage bags on the curb and stuff. Like yeah, They're sprinting, like pushing the mower. Yeah, it's just such a funny vision to, like in my head. But altogether, they were well-liked in their neighborhood. 
but they couldn't really seem to find a church that fit their ideologies either, partly because their ideologies were shifting so much as they went. So all the churches that focused on the teachings of Jesus from 2,000 years ago, but what about the problems that were happening now that the, that Hal Lindsey's book kind of made a focus in their mind? So crime, drug use, celebration of pagan holidays like Halloween by the same children their daughter was in school with. Like these things were not okay in their eyes. Mm-hmm. This was becoming a major problem. So Randy and Vicky decided that they would have to homeschool their children from then on. So Vicky quit her secretary job and stayed at home to raise the kids. She's probably psyched about that. I mean, like we talked about earlier, like she loved teaching people about raising children. And like right. She also wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Like she, that was one of her goals. And she just wanted to raise her kids at home. So maybe like, like let's just bring them home anyway. And I mean... We're talking about how their beliefs are dumb, but like Vicky is still like a very intelligent woman. She's very well read. She like went to school, graduated from college. Like she's a very smart woman. So she has all the capability to homeschool her children. It's Mm -hmm. just by this point, she's homeschooling her children in a way that's pushing their beliefs on the the children. Mm -hmm. And the children later on in like interviews would come to say like the our parents never pushed their beliefs on us. They very much told us to go like read and find things out ourselves. They just kind of guided us in certain ways. But Randy was very much a proponent of like, find out what you want to believe for yourself. It, yeah. That is really cool. I mean, love hearing that because yeah. their ideology wasn't great. Like, especially when they go on their Hayden Lake visits, which we'll cover in part two. Yeah. I mean, it's good that that was instilled in them to not just, believe you know what your parents are teaching you but figure things out for yourself right but at the same time it's like okay you're talking about a family who's going to live on an isolated mountaintop by themselves (laughs) where you're only going to interact with your family like who else are you going to hear about or where else are you going to hear like different ideologies hard to pick up new ideas yeah exactly (laughs) randy would go out and witness his faith to anyone who would listen and despite their fervent beliefs growing ever more intense Randy was the kind of guy who could kind of charm people to listen. Like I said, he was a very charismatic and well-liked guy. He would go down to a local coffee shop called Sambos at night and eventually formed a small group of people who had had similar similar ideologies. And he brought in the gun store owner after buying some guns to protect his family as the end times approach. There was a police officer that joined uh, eventually their speaking in tongues and preaching became too much for the coffee shop. So the weavers welcomed the group in their home, which can you imagine going to Starbucks and there's just <laughs> a group in the corner, like speaking in tongues. I was just about to say, can you imagine just a quaint little like coffee shop, ac- acoustic music is playing. And then you just see this group of six or six or seven people in the corner, just like, <laughs> Randy's standing up and like throwing Bibles down on tables. Randy's like. floating. Yeah. Like, what the? He is God. Yeah, one of them's like Wingardium Leviosa. <laughs> so Randy and Vicky eventually led everyone in their home and understanding how the Old Testament scriptures were a warning about the coming apocalypse. And one passage in particular read, quote, Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. 
every man's sword shall be against his brothers. So this is a sign for the weaver to get more guns. <laughs> yeah, the passage says that they'll have swords. They never thought about guns. If, okay, if this family became a sword family, that would make this story like way cooler. All things cured. I have no issues with that. <laughs> Just kidding. So they got a lot of guns because they'd have to fight the commies. And then their own government agents and non-believers, along with the scavengers who would roam the countryside. So they're just like, this is going to become a zombie movie in like a year. Randy started sleeping with a pistol under his pillow. And even more passages seemed to start confirming more of their fears about persecution, about wars, about famine. And then they found their answer in a passage from Matthew 24. Quote, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So this was a confirmation of the visions that they were having, that they needed to move, but how soon did they need to move? Well, they found that answer as well in Revelations. 42 months. So they had three and a half years to prepare. Very much already setting a uh, timeline for everything. I'm just picturing them reading that, and then just like a cartoon where a huge light bulb just goes off (laughs) the top of their head. Like, ding! We're out of here. And this is like very cult heavy like stuff now because they're taking apocalyptic language from the bible translating it into their own belief and also setting a deadline which are also very just like very telltale signs of a doomsday cult Mm -hmm. so it's very funny how just like a family individually came up with this whole ideology and kind of just started their own cult right all you need is just to bring a couple more families in and say we need to all have sex to increase yeah, the population this, after. This very much that's could have turned like, into a cult. That's but. like the big three yeah. of, of doomsday cults or, come, or cults in general. Yeah. So Vicky and Randy began to preach to everyone about their new beliefs. They told their neighbors they wouldn't celebrate Christmas because it was pagan. When Julie started studying astrology and David kept playing in his rock band, or, uh, yeah, Randy stopped by, told them they needed to stop indulging in the devil's vices. Sunday dinners at Vicky's parents became arguments about guns and religion, with Randy throwing out crazy concepts, such as the Holocaust never happening. Ugh. So they eventually even became Holocaust deniers. I think the funniest imagery in my head is, is him like going up to Randy, like mid-playing Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> and being like, you have to quit this. This is the devil's music. Yeah. Yeah. But it's when people's beliefs get a complete hold of them is when... Like we've we've said it once, we've said a million times on this podcast. That's when things get radical, dangerous. Yeah. And I said David kept playing in his rock band, but David is J- Vicky's father. That's not who it was. It was Keith. It was Julie's husband that was playing in the rock band. Maybe they all did. One was <laughs> slapping the bass and one was shredding. It could be. <laughs> so their beliefs were obviously becoming even more radical. Uh, despite this, they were still good parents. Everyone who had known them, said that they were good parents. In 1982, they would welcome their third child, Rachel, into the world as the second of the Weaver's daughters. And the family would turn conservation towards the baby instead of arguing about politics and end times. Or turn conversation, not conservation. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I got you. Uh, but Vicky and Randy were still preparing. They, like I said, they had three and a half years. So they gave away any of their fancy household items to their neighbors, the Flynns, in exchange for their plain cookware and furniture. Randy visited the Amish to learn how to live without modern conveniences, and while they were preparing, the signs of evil kept showing themselves more and more in their eyes. 
Randy's coworkers were sneaking off to with perverse magazines, and the Weaver's study group was being investigated by the local police as a possible danger. I mean, can you blame them? It's like I said, it's pretty much the beginnings of a cult. And mm-hmm. in the sixties, that's kind of a big or in the seventies now, that was kind of a big deal. A lot of cult activity. Oh yeah. Like a lot. That was the heyday <laughs> for cults. Yeah. That was yeah, that was the golden age for cults. But this, in their eyes, was another attempt from the evil government to shut them up. And they're like, "No, sir, you just can't fly around the coffee <laughs> shop anymore. <laughs> you can't be screaming at the sambos anymore." Right. <laughs> this is a nice establishment. So reporters also began to hear about the Bible group that Vicky and Randy were heading. So they came to interview the couple along with a friend and group member named Shannon about the allegations that they were starting a cult. So the Weavers obviously denied the claims and said even though they may have people joining them in the mountains, that they weren't really a group. They identified themselves as Christian survivalists. And the whole idea was that they would move into kind of a a similar location to each other, but they would not live together. They wouldn't live on a compound or anything like that. It would just very much be that we would all decide on a place, go move there, and build our own individual livings. So it's not necessarily a cult idea but it's like kind of it's like a cul-de-sac but everyone thinks and does the same things yeah it's like we're gonna be close enough that we could do things together it's like just in case we get silly one day (laughs) (laughs) so the reporter heard stories about defenses that the group would need and the quote 300 yard kill zone around the properties which comes back to bite them a little later So, however, when the stories came out, the Weavers were naturally furious. They uh, said that the reporter had ignored that they were just a kind, tight-knit Christian family and claimed that the kill zone that the reporter mentioned was never actually brought up. But it didn't really matter at that point because the rumors were already circulating and now they were gaining momentum against the Weavers. Right, and, like, you think of back in the day your only source of information is the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Or, I guess, the occasional magazine. But in this case, it was just that newspaper from that reporter. And once you hear phrases like 300-yard kill zone, yeah, it's just it's going to be the only thing that you really think about or talk about. You hear about a potential cult that your neighbor's starting where they're going to build a compound in the mountains. It's not, not a good sign. Right. It's like, stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> if... if Kool-Aid gets mentioned at all. It's like, Yeah. So in March of 1983, the Weavers would start their new journey. They put their house for sale on the market, sold most of what they didn't need at garage sales, and traded their car for a moving truck. While Vicky and Randy loaded up everything they had into the truck, the kids stayed over at the neighbors. Sammy had fallen and broken his leg while initially trying to help. <laughs> Just so funny. It's like, come on, kid, we're, we're on a tight crunch line, like 42 come on, months. Come kid, I can help. <laughs> like, all right, son, here you go. And then just immediately, like, <laughs> like Kevin Ware. <laughs> yeah, just so bad. <laughs> just an outrageous break. Their, na- their neighbor, Carly, remembers Vicky telling her, and I quote, For our beliefs, we could be killed. For our beliefs. One last Sunday dinner at the Jordansons was full of the men telling Randy to take care of the family and Vicky assuring her mom that they had enough belongings for the journey. And uh, uh, can, I, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I can't imagine how awkward that dinner had to be. Like, what, 
what was the meal that everyone was yeah. trying to eat while just not bringing up the fact that they're moving out to the middle of the mountains? It's very much dinner where there's like a lot of fork on plate sounds. Ooh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like exactly. trying to stab that one pea that's left on your plate. <laughs> right. No one is making eye contact. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time as this too, it didn't help that uh, like the farming industry was kind of going through a pretty rough time because interest rates were skyrocketing and people were starting to lose their land. So with Randy working at John Deere, he was like, I could lose my job here if this keeps going on. So now seems like the best time to pack up and move. I believe this is also just speaking about the economy. Wasn't this also a time where gas prices were outrageous? Probably. I believe I believe so. Like you see images in history books um and online of cars circled for blocks and blocks and blocks like trying to get gas. I believe it's cuz there was a shortage actually. Maybe it was that and uh prices were just so high, but it was hard economic times. Yeah, especially for farmers, which is like where these two came from right so it's like they're seeing everything pretty much to confirm their beliefs Mm -hmm. that like the government is coming to take our land now again Mm -hmm. my job's about to be obsolete so we got to get out of here and get to the mountains right like war with russia could end up like with atomic bombs at any time yeah that type of deal a few days later vicky and randy would stop over in their moving truck and sorry let me read that again A few days later, Vicky and Randy would stop over in their moving truck and pickup truck, pulling a trailer. Hold, am I having a stroke? <laughs> oh my god, I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's part two. Put the Italian music behind it. <laughs> Honestly, you should. That that would be so funny. <laughs> All right, take three. Uh-huh. A few days later, Vicky and Randy would stop over in their moving truck and pickup truck, pulling a trailer holding everything they owned. Randy said goodbye to his in-laws, and Vicky hugged her brother and sister before leaving. Julie and Lanny, but especially Julie, had a feeling this may be the last time they would see their sister. You know, reading that, I kind of just realized that Randy's parents never come back up. It's no. always Vicky's parents. It really is. They they really only go visit the Jordisons. I don't know if his parents passed away or what, but like he just mm. and his he has three other sisters too, right? Like they never bring up the rest of his family in the story. So I guess it just wasn't as tight knit of a relationship or something. But they just got so sick of trying to be sold those Amway products. <laughs> They're just like you're cut off. Yeah. That and probably a little bit of the religious aspect of it, but I'm sticking to the Amway products. It was mostly that. Would not doubt it. (laughs) After driving for about a week, the Weavers came upon the northern Idaho town of Bonners Ferry. I didn't realize how far away Idaho actually is because it's so far away. In the PBS documentary, they show like a line from northern Iowa Mm -hmm. to Idaho. I was like, holy fuck, that's really far. I did not realize that. Yeah, from Wisconsin, I think it's like a good 20 hours. And it's so close to Canada where they end up going to, which Mm -hmm. it's like literally 50 miles away. I wonder why they didn't decide to just, like, if their beliefs were, oh, the U.S. government is so bad, why just they just didn't go to Canada? I don't know. But I guess that's hindsight. Yeah. There, they met a nice couple who seemed to share their beliefs that God had led them to that spot. This couple told the Weavers 
of attractive land in the hills that they should check out. Both of the couples traveled south about seven miles to a county highway, which led into a thick wooded area. There, they walked up the hillside a couple miles down a dirt road and found the spot. It was a 15-acre section of land on a hill with a mountain meadow for fresh water and a view all around. They met some of the other families making their homes in that part of the world and went back to their motel to start planning their new home. And this is like a very scenic place. Like, it's very much not where I would set up a house, but like, it's a kind of a peak a smaller peak on this larger mountain and you can literally see like miles around and it's very scenic and woodsy but they really had to take a risk to set up a house here because it's very rugged oh gosh i can't imagine trying to establish a foundation for the house yeah in that in a literal mountain rock side yeah it's crazy the weavers eventually moved into a mobile home near the land that was owned by the briggs family who lived nearby by october Randy had bartered with the current owner of the lands and turned the 15 acres into 20. He paid $5,000 and their moving truck. Yeah. That is just, that makes me so mad. Now I can't I mean, even great get a deal, used car for $5,000. Honestly, being adults, like $100 is equivalent to like one adult dollar. Yeah. <laughs> if we're being quite honest. Yeah. Oh, man. Good for them. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The old owner used his bulldozer to clear a driveway from the logging path, and the weavers set about clearing the land to build their home. Some wood was burnt, other stacks kept for firewood, and some saved to use for the home itself. On November 6, 1983, Vicki and Randy celebrated their 12th wedding anniversary. That's how fast this happened. Like, just over a decade, they've had three kids, and now they're building a home in a mountainside. Yeah, they're building their doomsday fort. Yeah. In 12 years, that's how fast they came to the conclusion they needed to do this. Which doesn't sound like that, seem like that short of a time, but like, that's That's not a long time. Right, yeah. Boundary County, Idaho, was a getaway for anyone wanting to escape normal life. Up until the 80s, it was a place for drifters and hippies. But now it's becoming more extreme, with people like Vicky and Randy moving in. People whose hatred of the government, extravagant living, and for some, other races, had led them to seek ref- refuge there. Oops. And in a state with over a million people, and only about 3,000 of them being black, it wasn't a surprise. But nobody in the area discriminated. Anyone was safe there. And when we say that anyone was safe there and no one was discriminated against, we mean because of their beliefs. This is very much an area where racism was prevailing in a very large way, as we'll see more next episode. But, yeah, there's over a million people in this state. 3,000 of them are black. Right. Very small number of, like, other races that are predominant there. Like, it's, it's very much not a safe haven for, for people of color. Right, right, right. The family made some new friends during that first winter. The Tanners, the Kinnonsons, who shared their beliefs, and the Kumniks. But all the while, the Weavers were busy with building their new home. The original 40 by 55 foot plan was reduced to... Now I feel better about them getting that steel on the land. <laughs> was reduced to 25 by 32 foot, with a sleeping loft up above the main floor. But still... 
I don't know how I'm going to go build a 25 by 32 foot house that has a sleeping loft. That is extremely On a mountainside. <laughs> Probably with no power tools either. No. It's just ridiculous to me that they were able to do this like pretty much just by themselves. It's incredible. I mean, and Sammy broke his leg trying to load up a truck. Yeah, what an actual scrub. <laughs> yeah, like how are we? How are we letting him build a house now? Right, Sammy's just our first ever like loser of history. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a kid trying to help his dad. Keep your balance. Be an athlete. Sammy was like a spitting image of Randy too. Like when you see oh, really? pictures of him when he was younger before he shaved his head, mm-hmm. because. Oh. Oh, yeah, the skinheads come into this, so. Yep. <laughs> but before he shaved his head, when he actually had, like, a full head of hair, he looks very much like his father did when he was young. Plywood walls were put up with holes cut for windows. A metal sheet was pounded in as the roof to encourage the snow to slide right off. It was built as a house that would only be lived in for a few years, but the family figured the end was coming soon, and a few years would be long enough. As Vicky wrote, we had to get this house built quickly. Otherwise, we would have taken our time. But there may not be time. The kids love their new home. Well, except for the two-year-old, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah, you're just born, and now you're just thrown up on this mountainside. Like, I had no say in this. Right. Like, I am cold all the time. Yeah. Literally. Like, plywood walls. That's it. Yeah. With windows put in. What do they expect to do? Like, when a, well, I guess they had a million guns, but, like, when a bear came in. Yeah. Literally. Like, oh, no, all, plywood. All of uh. their guns. <laughs> By 1984, Vicky and Randy had started to expand their beliefs by talking to different radicals and spiritual people nearby. They extended their racial beliefs to the point where they believed the white man was to be completely separated from any other race, whether it be the blacks or the Jews. They began to identify with the racist religion known as Christian identity, which spewed the same supposedly biblical-based beliefs. Vicky's parents would make the 1,500-mile trip every year to visit, and although they disapproved of her daughter and son-in-law's beliefs, the trips were peaceful. And they brought the kids books. I hope one, just one time they tried to sneak in, like, a Superman. (laughs) Yeah, right. Watch them say that Superman was the Antichrist just for comedic effect. Yeah, and to say that this is a racist religion is, like, very broad strokes and like does not get into how bad it actually was like right they believe that white anglo-saxons were like god's descendants and the only pure race and that like the jews were literally the spawn of the devil right we'll talk about it more too but like this is where the order yep kicks in which is a another racist group Um, paramilitary paramilitary group Um, they had that same exact belief that the Bible, when they mention, when the Bible mentions that Jews were the chosen people of God, that that was actually fabricated. Like, that was a lie. Yeah. And they were like, no, but white people, <laughs> we're the chosen. Talk about picking and choosing what you want to say right. from the Bible. Right. It's like, no, you're probably from, like, Finland. Yeah. Was well, that anything to do with the... Oh, uh, speaking of Finland, there's the Swedish guy that comes <laughs> into the story later who is just like the most innocent man in the world, but he gets thrown into the whole story. <laughs> it's the saddest thing in the world, but oh, oh man, we'll get to that in Poor prob- probably part three. So uh, there is another boy named Kevin Harris who is next to join the crew and would be an integral part to the Weaver story. 
Uh, Kevin's father died when he was two, and his mother was already expecting her fourth child at the age of 22. So Kevin left home when he was young. So very much a rough household to grow up in. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. At 22. So he lived with friends for a while until he met Vicky and Randy when he was 15. And they said that he was welcome anytime. And the family provided him structure as well as a place to stay. So it kept him off the streets, away from drugs. And eventually he began to share their beliefs that maybe races should be separated. So he would drift in and out of the weaver's care for the next nine years, working around the country as a laborer and a logger. But the peace that the weavers had in their new home was short-lived. They got into arguments with others living nearby over their constant gunplay, and eventually their friends, the Kinnisons, got into a financial dispute, basically over land. So there was a lot of tension between the weavers and their neighbors. I mean, you've got a family that just moved in, just starts shooting guns all the time. Probably a little bit different than what you're used to. That'd be pretty annoying, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Kinnison said that Randy sold him half interest on some of the Weaver's land so that they could move a trailer there, and then Randy kicked them off and didn't give him his money back. Randy said otherwise. But regardless, these disputes led multiple people to go to the authorities and report that the Weavers had illegal firearms and booby-trapped their driveway. Hmm. So now these people are just starting to spew allegations against the Weavers, which are unfounded. I mean, they do have guns, mm -hmm. but they're not illegal. They are legally obtained guns at this point in the story. So it's very much now just a, kind of a smear campaign against them because they don't like their new neighbors. And at this point in the story, the Weavers have done nothing wrong. So, at least as far as we know. So, Vicky and Randy eventually had to talk to federal agents and found out about these rumors. And, of course, they viewed it as a conspiracy against them again. And in one letter, Vicky eerily quoted that they might eventually have FBI agents storming their property and that she would be killed just to have them pass it off as a woman assaulting a federal officer. So the family retreated further inward, but then Randy remembered a group that his friend Frank Kumnick had recommended, one full of people who might understand the Weavers and their beliefs, the Aryan Nations. And that is where we will pick up the story of the Weavers next week with further racism, an ATF sting operation, and one of the most bungled fugitive cases in American history. So Now that's foreshadowing. Look Dang. forward to that. <laughs> Man, I just think it was very interesting, this part one, like focusing on their upbringing, just basically going over what set up like the next two. I mean, obviously, it's part one. That's what you're supposed to do. But really loved how we dove into you know, what kind of makes them tick, it's know, important, the motivations. It's important to understand who these people are to understand the full narrative of the story. Because like I said, like I knew the overarching like, oh, there was a standoff on a mountain with mm -hmm. federal agents and this family. But that's like all I knew. Right. Like how did it get here? What was like the the point where this turned that this happened? Mm -hmm. So it's it's very interesting to see how this all American family can quickly become defensive, inward looking people who don't trust anyone. Like Right. Especially with Randy's like high school and college um, experience where he was kind of Mr. Popular. Yeah. In a way, driving around his cool Mustang, slick back hair, and just crushing beers. Right. And especially and a bus driver. And a guy like, who served in the military. 
right. like, and wanted to become an FBI agent or like a serviceman. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's, it's very weird to see how that shifted so quickly and radically in the other direction. Oh gosh. Like yeah. it's literally is polar opposite. But mm-hmm. so, Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this first part of Ruby Ridge. I know it's not as action-packed as some of our other episodes are, but I think it's very important that we get this stuff out of the way first, and then we can go into the actual details of the story. Right. Buckle up for the next two. Yeah. The next two are very much going to be more action-packed than than this first part, (laughs) especially part three, where we go over what actually happened the day of. So, Anywho, you can find us on social medias. On Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at Wadevskis. You can also find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast <laughs> or just type in gems of history and you should be able to find us. And then finally, the old TikTok. You can find us at gems of history pod on TikTok. Dang, are we reachable. <laughs> we're out there, man. <laughs> the only one we're not on is Facebook, because Zuckerberg sucks. Right. They'll be the first ones on Metaverse. Even though, though. Instagram is like a conglomerate of Facebook. Right, now, yeah. So it's like, whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you guys want to get in touch by email, you can email us at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com if that feels more comfortable for you. But other than that, we will be back next week with the continuation of the Weaver story and all of the fun shenanigans that go along with that. Not so fun shenanigans, I guess. Depends who you ask. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about hating other groups of people. No bueno. No, not at all. Yelly. So, everyone, have a great week this week. We hope you guys are all staying healthy, staying safe out there, and we will talk to you later.